Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to... Where are we? Mythgard Academy. That's where we are. <laughs> I almost said Exploring the Lord of the Rings, which was last night. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 12 of our discussion of the nature of Middle-earth, edited by Carl Hostetter. Uh, we are at uh, an exciting moment here. This is where, for those of you who are following along synchronously, we are... Um, uh, returning after several weeks off uh, for the holidays in the beginning of the new year of 2022. Happy New Year, everybody. Um, uh, I, I know for those of you who are listening asynchronously, there might not be a gap between the last episode and this, uh, but for, for us there is. Uh, so kind of try to get back into things here today. Um, but also, of course, we are advancing to the next part of the book. We've been talking about elvish aging and, uh, uh, you know, charts of, uh, you know, tables of figures calculating the, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the generational development of the elves and stuff for several months now, uh, and, uh, shifting to something, um, new would be interesting. Yeah. Oh, Christopher, we are going to get to a moment of silent wonder for the concept of Celebrimbor the Teller. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll get there. That's my hope uh, that we'll get there. Um, before we move on, though, quick announcement. I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew uh, Mythmoot 9 is coming up at the end of June, and there are two announcements about that. First of all, our guests of honor have been announced. If you go to signumuniversity.org slash Mythmoot, uh, and click on the Mythmoot 9 link. Uh, you can see on that page um, we have several guests of honor, including Mike Drought, uh, who has been a friend of Signum for a long time. Mike is going to come. He'll be there physically. Uh, so everyone who's attending physically will get a chance to hang out with Mike, who's a pretty fun guy uh, to hang out with. Um, so I definitely uh, am... Uh, as always, really excited about Mythmoot. I'm going to definitely be there physically as well, um, barring some catastrophe unforeseen. Um, but um, anyway, it's going to be it's going to be really uh, wonderful. Mythmoot is always really wonderful. For those of you who have never been able to be there, strongly encourage it. Mythmoot is uh, um, it's like a you know a, a combination of uh, a scholarly um, scholarly conference and fan conference and gathering of old friends. Uh, it is such a wonderful community to be a part of, and uh, I always look forward to that. And I'm very glad, of course, that we will be able to have, again, the uh, both digital and physical participation available uh, for MythMoot. Uh, if uh, something or anything uh, impedes you from being there, um, we were able, uh, for those of you who've looked into this already, we were able significantly to reduce the price of Mythmoot this year, which I was very glad we could do. It was one of my goals for this year, and we were able to attain it. Uh, so uh, both for both the physical and the, uh, the online, are, um, the, the, the rates are lower this year. Uh, so anyway... Mythmoot's going to be a great time. And the other announcement that I'd, I'd folks wanted me to make about that was that the early bird pricing has been extended through to the end of January. So um, we have an early bird price uh, for people to kind of make their reservations. And then we have, uh, um, you can still register pretty much up to the day of the conference, but um, uh, the price increases will increase a little bit at the end of January. So uh, if you think you'll be able to come or would like to attend online, you are welcome to uh, uh, to register now, and it is at a, a lower rate. Um, 
So there we go. It, Ilana, the Pacific Ocean is a pretty major impediment. It's true. Uh, that's definitely uh, that's definitely an issue. I know. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, so let's um, let's jump back into it. But actually, uh, Ilana, if you're okay with that, I was going to share with uh, uh, folks some of the comments that you were sending me. Ilana uh, was catching up because she lives in Australia and the book was late to release down there later than it was up here. Uh, so she only got the book a couple months after uh, we began discussing it and was kind of catching up uh, over, uh, uh, over the holidays. And um, uh, anyway, I, I was particularly interested to hear Alana's reflections because she herself is a philologist like Tolkien was. She is a professor of linguistics. Um, and I just wanted to share with you some of her kind of reactions to um, both, the, you know, reading the work and to listening to our discussions and things, because I felt that it gave a really good compliment to some of the things that I was trying to explain and express. I know that many of you, I know that some of you were delighted by, um, uh, some of you were delighted by Tolkien's math uh, and his uh, penchant for uh, calculations uh, in part one. And some of you were not. I, I, I know this. I understand. I, it's fine. You know, it's this, you know, you don't have to be ashamed either way. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things, of course, that I was trying to, um, one of the things that I was trying to capture, uh, to point to perhaps, um, is trying to understand what it showed us about Tolkien and Tolkien's mind. And, um, even if you found the things which he was manifestly enjoying right throughout that whole process, even if you found those left you rather cold, um, and you didn't share his enthusiasm for it, that's okay. Um, but it's still really good. It's still really useful to begin to try to understand what it was about it that he really enjoyed and really liked. So that was one of the things uh, that I was um, uh, that I was kind of you know working with and uh, and and attempting to do. Um, well, so anyway, so let me uh, uh, share with you a little bit about Ilana's thoughts as a fellow philologist to Tolkien and her reaction to it. Um, she was saying uh, that as she has been reading Tolkien's notes, she says, I've been struck by how much of Tolkien the linguist is coming through. Um, not so much in the direct analysis of language, but in his attempts to find the right formula or pattern to fit the facts. Um, she says, you know, in some of his biographies, uh, some of his biographies discuss Tolkien's early attraction to English philology uh, was discussed in terms of his excitement at learning there was a scientific way to discover connections between ancient languages through pro through processes of deduction and inference, starting with contemporary texts. For Tolkien, this seems to be the secondary interest. His primary interest being understanding the culture and literature of the people who used those ancient languages, but that fascination of discovery of linguistic patterns to fit the textual facts remains, and we can see it at work here. She was talking about, she talks about it in all the ways in which we see him taking the Red Book, taking, you know, the public, you know, the, 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 the Silmarillion stories as he has them as sort of established facts and then taking other fragments and ideas and trying to find what is the system, right? We, 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 we were focusing with all that math, right? He wasn't content just to throw out, to make a story, right? Or to throw out a scenario. He needed to have a system, not even just to do kind of vagueish world building, right? He wasn't content just to say something like, so um, elves um, 
they grow up pretty fast, but then they, you know, uh, their, their, their aging then slows down a lot, right? And then just leave it at that, right? He wasn't content to do that. He needed a system. He needed to work out the ratios. He needed to find the way that it all worked in order to make, to discover what was the system that fit the facts, right? The, the few facts that we have. And, um, and uh, Ilana goes on to say, this is exactly what linguists do with language data, whether it's about reconstructing older forms of language from ancient texts or describing the grammars and lexicons of contemporary languages with no written tradition um, or understanding how the way people use language impacts and leads to language change. Just, you know, both of those things are things that she does and she knows uh, that Tolkien was really interested in. And she finishes, I cannot think of another writer of fiction who has been who has been able to fold their scholarship methods, um, as well as profound understanding of subject matter, into their creative process in this way, in the way that Tolkien does. What an extraordinary work the new Silmarillion would have been. Um, so, I, I I I wanted to share that because I think you know one of the things I might be wrong, but one of the things that I was. Um, uh, getting from people, right, that I was kind of hearing either explicitly or kind of implicitly in um, the comments that several people were making uh, during the course of our discussions of part one was something I, I was I was I was feeling that a lot of you were to some extent or another feeling that all of this math, right, all of this uh, laborious sorting out of the system and theory after theory of ratios with mortal years and stuff ruins the magic. You know, it's like, it's not like it's, let's stick with myth, right? Stick with story, stick with myth, all of this, like trying to work out exactly how many babies they have. And then the generation 23 then has four children each, like that. It's just kind of like, if it, if it accomplishes anything, it ruins the magic. Right. Um, again, that's, not all of you, like you know, there aren't a whole lot of you that said that explicitly, but that was one of the impressions that I was getting from people, and I can, I think I can understand um, how, uh, uh, how, you know, how you feel that way. But I thought that uh, Ilana's comments really helped me to sort of see that in a new way, basically, right? Like, it's just, and this, it's connected with what I was saying, but I was talking about what seems to me such obvious evidence that Tolkien was just having fun with this, right? This was enormously entertaining to him, even all the mathematical calculations, not despite, through all the mathematical calculations, right? Um, and I think that Alana helps me to see how far from destroying the magic, this was an entire new level of magic, right? I mean, again, as she was recalling that moment, and you, you can read about Tolkien's sort of his discovery, his excitement about this, like that language is not sort of, you know, random and disconnected, right? This magical insight that uh, ma languages are related to each other, right? And we can, we can figure out how. Um, and when, the, when, you, when you have the key to that, right? When you're given the key to that, it's, it's like opening a magic door, Right? And all of a sudden, not only language, but human stories, human culture, human history itself, right? Seems like, you know, you've, you've been given a key, right? That helps you to see all of those things. Well, in a way, 
um, just like that same kind, that kind of magic, right? That kind of flavor of magic, if you see what I mean, um, seems to me to be uh, the kind of thing that he was going for here, right? Why was he spending all this time laboring over these figures, right? And trying to figure this out because he wanted that key, right? Um, if he could discover how it should work. And remember also the element of discovery that Tolkien always talked about, right? I suspect that if you'd talk to him about it, he wouldn't have said, I need to come up with a system that's consistent. I think that he would have said, I have to figure out how it really works, right? He was trying to get at the truth in a sense, right? If you understand what I mean by that, the truth about Elvish aging, Right. And uh, and how the elves really, um, uh, really, really worked. Um, but um, anyway, so that's um, uh, I just I thought that was a, a, f- a really fun reflection on uh, part one. But um, yeah, Bjarna Sonner says uh, I picked up Tolkien in middle school and 16 years later, I have a master's degree in linguistics. Yeah. Yeah. Be honest, Hunter, it's it's kind of funny. I um, I can always tell the difference between Tolkien fans and non-Tolkien fans when I tell them about S- Signum's academic program, right? Uh, when I tell them, yeah, we have we started off with a uh, with a, a Tolkien studies program, and then we expanded into Germanic philology, right? And people who don't know Tolkien are like, whoa, that's really random, right? And the Tolkien fans are all like, oh, well, yeah. I mean, of course, that's like the logical second thing that you would expand to, isn't it? Um, but um, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's that's it. That is uh, exactly the uh, the course which many a Tolkien fan has uh, has trodden. Be honest, honor, um, absolutely. Okay, <clears throat> but let us dig in, dig into part two, uh, which uh, is a a little bit eclectic, right? Focusing on. Uh, the body, mind, and spirit uh, of the elves. We're going to be focusing a lot on the bodies uh, here uh, in the uh, in the beginning here today. Um, but I found almost all of the no, I found everything here really, really fun. So let's uh, let's dig into some of this. Um, okay, first, these are based on uh, some of his philological, explicitly, you know linguistic stuff, right? Talking about the Elvish languages. Um, and one of the things that we see, and this is one of, one of the patterns that uh, Carl Hostetter, the uh, editor, was pointing out, is what we, essentially what we can learn about what the good and the beautiful are in Tolkien. Like, how does good and evil beautiful and, uh, uh, and, you know, and like fair and foul, right? How does, how does, how does that work in Tolkien's world? Um, so this was my, my favorite illustration of this. Uh, so the stem man meaning good, this implies to what a person or thing is relatively or absolutely unmarred. Sorry, this implies that a person or thing is relatively or absolutely unmarred. That is, in Elvish thought, unaffected by the disorders introduced into Arda by Morgoth, and therefore is true to its nature and function. Now, I agree with Carl that a statement like that uh, contains and demonstrates uh, 
a very clear sort of um, philosophical, theological, I was going to say assumption, but it's not an assumption, a, a foundation, right? Framework, uh, concept by Tolkien. Um, what does it mean to be good? What does it mean for a thing to be excellent? A thing, for a thing to be excellent, it means it is what it is supposed to be, right? Beneath the entire concept of the beautiful and the good in Middle-earth is the design of Iluvatar, right? The design of Iluvatar and, of course, that design implemented and uh, uh, delegated, you know, worked through uh, the Valar as well, right? The, they put their own thought into the song as well. Um, that's what it means to be good. You don't start off like mediocre and achieve excellence, right? Work up towards excellence. You, the, the, the good is unmarred. Is it, That's where things begin. That's the default state, right? Created things are good. God looks at them and they are good. And, but they can decrease. They can decline. They can be reduced um, they can be marred. And of course, the entire story of Arda begins with the marring of Arda by Morgoth. Um, so in Elvish thought, that, that which is good is that which is least affected, right? Is unaffected by the disorders introduced into Arda by Morgoth. Um, we talked quite a lot uh, in our discussions of Morgoth's ring last year um, about... Uh, how insistent Tolkien was on the basic premise when he came to really apply more consistent philosophical and theological thought uh, to the framework of his stories after the writing of the Lord of the Rings. Um, one of the things that he really uh, decided that everything kind of hangs on, right, was the fact that evil cannot create right? That uh, evil can only mar that which is created. It cannot create new things of its own, right? The statement that Frodo makes. Um, and by the way, I, based on the evidence of what we can see in his, in his uh, you know, the way that the story uh, unfolds um, as we read about it in the history of the Lord of the Rings, I suspect, I strongly suspect that when Frodo opens his mouth and makes that speech in the two towers when he explains to Sam about how, yes, there's food and drink in Mordor because they're real normal living creatures. Orcs are right. And um, the enemy can't make any new things of its own. He can only twist those things that are made right when Frodo makes that speech. I strongly believe that that's the moment at which Tolkien, he basically like, from then on. That was true. It had not been true earlier. That was not the original concept of the orcs. Um, but from then on, he holds to that. Um, so we can see that here. But this is kind of uh, an accompaniment to that or a sort of corollary of it, right? If evil cannot create, then that means that everything that is, everything that is created, all of creation comes from Iluvatar and is a product itself of good. And so therefore, that which is good that we see in the world around us, that which is best, is that which most perfectly retains its original form, right? Um, hence, we have that tendency towards decline 
in all things in Middle-earth that we can see again and again and again um, through, uh, uh, through so much of Tolkien storytelling in The Lord of the Rings, in, uh, um, in the Silmarillion materials, even in The Hobbit, right? Um, now, continuing on here. If applied to mind or spirit, it is more or less equivalent to morally good, but applied to bodies, it naturally refers to health and to absence of distortions, damages, blemishes, etc. Um, so again, this is the, the stem mon that we're talking about here. Um, so several, just several things that I would point to here. Again, notice, how does a body become not good, right? What is a, what is a, a good body, a healthy body, right? One w- which is not distorted, damaged, or blemished again, like the it's the it's the the twisting of things, right? It's the decline of things. It's the failure of things to achieve, you know, the original design or concept. That's what badness is. That's what unhealth is. But notice that he explicitly parallels that to mor- to morality, right? To the mind or spirit. When that stem man is referred to the mind or spirit, it's more or less equivalent to morally good. Right? So, again, by extension, if bodies, if good or healthy bodies are those that are not distorted, damaged, or blemished physically, then good or healthy minds and spirits, morally good minds and spirits, are those which are not distorted, damaged, or blemished, right? But morally, uh, uh, you know, in their uh, in their spirits as well. And again, it's this is all, and it's it's a, this is all a consequence of violence, right? Um, how distorted? How damaged? By whom? Blemished? How? By Morgoth, right? By the marring of Arda. Um, this is clearly part of the 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 basic conception, and I agree with Carl that this is a really good illustration. He talked about this in his little editorial introduction to part two. Um, and I agree that we can see here, um, I think it's, he is right to point out, to point this stuff out as pointing to what, uh, you know, Tolkien spoke of, uh, you know, when he, what he meant when he said that the Lord of the Rings was a fundamentally Catholic work. Um, Catholic in its fundamentals, right? Or at least it, it became so increasingly, right? And by increasingly, I mean as he began to really think through the philosophy and theology. When he asked, when he started asking himself the questions, when he really began thinking about it theologically, he made the theology to conform with traditional Catholic theology and this concept of things being created good and, um, you know, both sin and sickness both being a, a, a marring, a twisting, a corruption, a perversion of the original goodness, a very traditional uh, Catholic idea. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and that is really interesting. Alana says, usually metaphorical uses of language go from physical to spiritual. Like you start with a physical idea, right? And then you project that idea onto the, uh, uh, you know, a spiritual thing. So like, for instance, you start with the wind in the trees, right? Uh, the concept of the wind in the trees. And then from there you extrapolate, uh, to the idea of the spirit of God, right? Um, 
uh, you know, or like the spirit, right? Those two words, spirit and wind and breath, right, are all famously this, you know, uh, uh, Barfield talks about this. Uh, the most famous example, right, of like there's usually like in a lot of language and language groups, there's like one word for all three of those things. It's the same idea. It's like it, it seems to be in some ways an almost not exactly an undifferentiated concept, but uh, uh, really um, certainly not just three independent concepts that happen to have the same name. But again, Alana, right. So, we, you know, usually it goes from observing the physical and extrapolating to the spiritual. But she says, I, I, I can easily um, I can easily imagine elves working the other way. Right. Sort of starting with the spiritual and uh, uh, and kind of projecting it onto the physical. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting. Okay, so he goes on. Derivatives. Amon. So he's like, what are some examples, right, of how this root for the word good is used? And I think these are really interesting examples. Amon. Quenya Amon Sindarin Avon. Unmarred state. So the literal translation of Amon is unmarred state. So the blessed realm, the... Uh, the, the um, uh, the undying lands, right? These are some translations, right, of uh, of Amon. Um, he says literally, unmarred state, especially applied to the unmarred western regions of which Valinor, abode of the Valar, was part. So Amon, it means unmarred. It's good. It's the it's 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 the blessed realm, right? But notice how even that concept of blessing is implicit in the idea of goodness. It's not self-derived goodness, right? It's, in a sense, not goodness for anything good about it. It is good. It's the best place because it is the place that is most like it was designed to be, right? It is the place where the blessing of uh, the blessing of the Valar, but through them and behind them, the blessing of Iluvatar himself is most perfectly maintained, is least messed up, right? Is most perfectly maintained, Um so it, it is in that sense, the blessed realm, right? Manwe, his name has that man root in it. Manwe, Quenya name of the elder king, lord of the Valar of Amon. So Manwe's name itself is also connected with this idea of unmarred, uh, being unmarred. Mana. Any good or fortunate thing, a boon or blessing, a grace being especially used of some thing, person, or event that helps or amends an evil or difficulty. So uh, uh, a mana is a, a boon or a blessing, right? Some good thing that you do for that someone has done for you or that's done for somebody, right? It is a grace, but especially most frequently used of something, person, or event that helps or amends an evil or difficulty. So what is the what is the quintessential blessing, boon, or grace? Something that actually works against the marring, right? It's like fundamentally, as a concept, it's fundamentally opposed to that downward pull, right? That uh, distortion of the marring of Morgoth. Um... So, cross-reference, a frequent ejaculation on receiving aid in trouble. So, you know, if somebody helps you out, if you're in trouble and somebody helps you out, you might cry, yay, mana! What a blessing. What a good thing. 
manya, the verb, to bless, uh, either to afford grace or help or to wish it, right? So um, what a blessing. What a good thing um, when you receive aid in trouble. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Michael, that is true. Um, and you're right that um, Amon and Valinor, it is true that it's we often think of them as synonymous. Um, uh, yes, they often think, it, it's very easy to think of them as synonymous. But yes, apparently Valinor is a subset of Amon. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, yeah, some of the boundaries are a little bit weird, I have to say. Um, especially since, well, his concepts of this, like of the geography, you know, kind of change around some. Um, so, you know, Michael, at one point I was settled into the idea like, okay, so Amman is like the continent, right? And Valinor is like the region where they specifically live, right? Like around Valmar, the city. So Valmar is the city and Valinor is like the province, right? And then Amman is like the whole, the whole continent, right? The whole, you know, all the land there. Um, except that doesn't seem to be quite in some places that there are other parts of the land mass, which are like geologically contiguous, right? With Amman are called something else like Abathar. Uh, so, you know, it's, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it is... Uh, not always... Well, it's not always consistent in Tolkien's own imagination. But yes, they're definitely, they're definitely different. Um, okay. More stuff on language. The Elvish languages did not distinguish grammatically between male, masculine, and female, feminine. Thus, say meant he or she. That is the pronoun, say. But there was a distinction made between animate and inanimate. Animates included not only rational creatures, speaking people, but all things living and reproducing their kind. To these were applied the pronouns such as say, he or she. Inanimates included not only all physical objects recognized or thought of as distinct things, such as river, mountain, or substance, substances such as metal, stone, gold, but also parts of bodies or living shapes, whether dead or thought of as analyzable parts or organs of a living whole, such as leg, eye, ear, hand, arm, head, horn, flesh, blood, flower, seed, root, stem, tentacle, skin, leather, hair, etc. It also included all grammatical abstracts, such as thought, act, deed, color, shape, feeling, sight, mood, time, place, force, strength, etc. Um, okay, so first, this kind of blew my mind. Um, this kind of blew my mind because I didn't know this about uh, Quenya, the lack of distinction grammatically between masculine and feminine, and instead the primary distinction being between animate and inanimate. I didn't know that about Quenya. Um, and uh, Tolkien's languages are something I have studied much less than someday I hope to, but I haven't gotten the chance to. And it's never been at the very heart of my uh, love of Tolkien, so I've never really spent much time uh, uh, really digging deep into Tolkien's languages. Um, but um, anyway, uh, 
But this kind of blew my mind because I had just, I have just like literally three weeks ago, um, started learning a language that makes this distinction. And I'd never even heard of this distinction before. That is a language which is not interested in masculine and feminine as primary categories, but instead inanimate and inanimate as primary distinguishing categories. Um, uh, the language was Ojibwe Moen, uh, Bjorn um, uh, the It's a, one of the Native American language groups. Um, and uh, I was really fascinated uh, to, you know, we, you know, heard and we're talking some about uh, the way that that language works, which, by the way, I'm like totally convinced uh, that Ojibwe Moen is like Old Entish, basically. Um, uh, some of the um, Ojibwe Moen speakers were, were explaining, for instance, that like in Ojibwe Moen, the word for blueberry pie essentially contains the entire recipe for blueberry pie, <laughs> like describes the attributes of the blueberry pie, talks about the ingredients and like how you prepare it. Um, <laughs> so I was like, okay, um, cool. <laughs> That's really interesting. I know old interest was literally the only like uh, language that I knew that kind of was as um, what's the, what's the word? Bjorn Sonner or Alana, you could help me with this. What's the word? Agglomerative? Is, is, is that something like that? Um, word that like just like adds on and adds on and adds on. Um, but uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated and fascinating language. Agglutinative. That's the word. Agglutinative. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Carrie. So um, agglutinative. Yes, it's an extremely agglutinative language, apparently. Ojibwe Moen. But it has this element to it. And... Um, uh, this whole, like, not distinguishing between masculine and feminine, but distinguishing between animate and animate. So again, here I had just encountered this, right, in beginning to learn some Ojibwe Moen, and um, and I was like, wow, that's weird. I've never even heard of that before. And then three weeks later, I'm reading The Nation of Middle-earth, and I'm like, wait, what? And Quenya's like that, too? Holy cow. Um, but, um, uh, so, I, I, yeah, as I say, that kind of, that kind of blew my mind. Um, and, uh, and I don't know, I, I, so, and this, I would, you know, and I'm so glad, uh, that we have linguists here in, atten in, uh, in attendance. Um, so, uh, Ilana, Bjorn, Bjorn uh, uh, Carrie, if you could tell me, um, how common is this? I, I mean, my understanding is that several of the Native American languages have that, um, tendency, right? Um, uh, that, uh, that again, the the animate uh, to have the 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 emphasis be on animacy, right? The the kind of grammatical distinction uh, based on uh, based on animacy. Um, but um, I, but is that how? I, mean, I know that there are some ways in which animacy is distinguished in many other languages in kind of minor ways. I mean, it even is in English, right? I mean, this is a um, uh, this is exactly how um, uh, this is like the 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 it pronoun, right? Um, this is why uh, uh, people will sometimes get offended if you use the word it to refer to like a baby or something, right? Um, uh, you know, like that. You know, the whole, like it's not an it; it's a you know he or she or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, so the Australian languages do too. The Aboriginal languages down there, Ilana. That's really cool. That's really cool. But anyway, it's just so I know that there are elements 
of animacy that are reflected uh, in many languages. Um, but the this combination, like where, um, but still, like it's it's perfectly clear. Whereas in languages like English or Spanish or something like that, um, animacy is reflected uh, in various ways within the language. Um, but it's very clear to anybody learning the language. Ma- you know, masculine and feminine matters a lot more, right? I mean, that's the like the fundamental. You 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 split nouns up into masculine, feminine, and maybe neuter uh, nouns. Um, the, you know, it's all that's all like you know, gender is the primary uh, the primary dimension there, right? Um, so that that that's what I meant when I said how many languages have like don't really distinguish between masculine and feminine in that way, but instead. Um, uh, uh, focus on animacy. So, anyway, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so um, it's uh, I, I I just I, as I say, this just kind of just kind of uh, uh, blew me away. Um, and I know, like, what I'm really kind of doing here is uh, trying try to like start one end of like a a linguist's roundtable to discuss some of this stuff. Uh, maybe we just need to like bring you guys in and, and let you guys talk here because I don't know enough about this to, to really carry on. But, um, uh, anyway, I think that this is, uh, this is really, um, uh, really interesting stuff. Um, but, um, interesting. Um, uh, Gildalowin says, this is the type of system often proposed for Proto-Indo-European, right? Proto-Indo-European, I, I heard, was it Mike Drought? Sounds like a Mike Drought joke. Said, you know, that in the 19th century, um, Proto-Indo-European was the fastest growing language in Europe. Um, <laughs> that um, uh, uh, Proto-Indo-European is like the this sort of theoretically reconstructed root language, right, from which like almost all modern languages, uh, are derived. Um, and, um, uh, anyway, so, um, we, uh, uh, so yeah, it, it, it's interesting, uh, Gildalowin, um, that, it, um, people have suggested this kind of system for Proto-Indo-European. Um, I suspect that that is what Tolkien had in mind, right? Um, uh, that he was basically thinking about sort of making connections, explicit connections between Quenya and something like Proto-Indo-European. That seems to me very likely. Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry. So uh, maybe what I'd especially, and we'll see, depending on how much of the linguistic stuff we get into in the rest of the book. Uh, maybe we do around. Maybe we do a roundtable, you know, at the end or something like that. I would love to hear more uh, from folks who know much more about uh, the the languages and linguistics than I do. Um, but um, okay, yeah. So Cecilia, let me let me back up a little bit and try a, a, a little bit more to explain the concept. Right. Um, so. The fundamental distinction, he says, is made between animate and inanimate objects. So if you think about it, like just think, think about a, a, a list of nouns, right? A random list of nouns. Again, in a lot of modern languages, um, you would kind of group those nouns, in, those, those nouns into categories, two or three categories, right, usually, uh, based on gender. And sometimes that gender is obvious, right? Like 
you know, men are masculine and women are feminine. Um, but sometimes it's not at all obvious. Like, is a mountain masculine or feminine? You know, is a, you know, is a, is a deer masculine or feminine? Um, and it's, it's not always, um, it's not always intuitive, right? Um, uh, what is masculine or feminine? Um, but that's the, the normal divide, right? So my understanding, uh, Cecilia, is that what he's saying here is that's not fundamentally how elvish, how elven languages worked. What they cared about most, how they would group a big old random list of nouns, um, is not into, not group them into masculine or feminine, but rather, um, into, um, uh, uh, into animate and inanimate. So animate things, it seems to be a much smaller category, right? Things that would, nouns that would get grouped into the, into the animate category are people, so like, uh, uh, Quindy, dwarves, right? Person, you know, like man, woman, like anything that is, uh, a living thing and reproducing their kind. So, so deer, Right, all animals, plants, like all of those things, like so, like the the a noun, like the noun for oak tree, the noun for um, you know snake, the noun for uh, uh, dwarf, um, all of those kinds of nouns, and presumably other nouns that were related to or referring to them, right? Like a noun like warrior or carpenter or I don't know anything like that um, all of those things are uh, those are all animate nouns right inanimate nouns are physical objects um, either a physical object thought of as a, a distinct thing river or mountain right substances so the word metal the word stone, the word gold, those are all inanimate nouns. Parts of body. So if it's, so like, um, you know, the the word dwarf, the word, you know, uh, metalsmith, right? Those would be animate nouns. But the word hand is inanimate, right? It's not itself, a, it's a part of a living thing, but it's not itself, a living thing that reproduces its own kind, right? Uh, hands can't, they don't make more hands, right? Um, they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't spawn other hands. Um, so, um, so yeah, but that, and that refers to anything of any living thing. So arm, head, blood, flower, root, tentacle, hair, skin, like all of those words are inanimate words. Those would all be in the inanimate category and also abstract nouns. Thought, color, shape, feeling, those nouns, um, as well as anything in them, right? So, um, you know, blue, uh, circle, um, anger, uh, you know, irritation, um, uh, lunchtime, right? All of those things would be, uh, would be, would be inanimate nouns, um, yeah. Okay. Um, so that's my understanding of uh, the the difference here that he's that he's talking about now. Okay. All right. Um, let's move forward. Again, this was that was as I say that just kind of 
blew my socks off. Um, I think it's just a coincidence. I don't think it suggests that he was familiar with Native American languages. It seems much more likely to be the Proto-Indo-European connection. That sounds to me highly plausible. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, I uh, I still... It was kind of a, in my own like experience of the last month uh, a crazy coincidence. Um, okay, cool. All right. Oh, it's straight finish. Yeah. So finish does it too. Okay, great. Well, there you go. There you go. Finish does it too. That's all. That's excuse enough. That's excuse enough. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Karina, tentacle would be inanimate because it's just a part of the octopus, right? Just like hand or leg is part of a human or dwarf, right? Um, so tentacle is just, it's just, it's not itself the living octopus, right? It's just a part. Um, okay. I see. Finnish does exactly what Quenya does here. Okay, right, right. Exactly. So he's following, he's following Finnish. Right, right. Oh, interesting. Curious Gene says that he did work on some Algonquin words when he was with the OED. Um, so he was not totally unfamiliar with uh, Native American languages. That's interesting. That's interesting. Okay. Anyway, sorry. I'm just this is, sorry. I'm indulging myself. I'm just learning here from our uh, live attendees. Uh, very fortunate to have so many wonderfully linguistic people uh, in the audience here tonight. Okay. Um. I was here's some more linguistic stuff, um, but I was let me let me tell you what I what struck me most about this passage before I read it, right? Um, because I want I'm going to try to draw your attention to this element of this passage. There's so much we could talk about here, and again, I'm sure that our linguistic friends could say ten times more than I have to say about this passage. But what interested me most was this idea of explaining the data. Think about this as he is developing his languages, right? As he is working out what these words mean and how he is kind of going about things here, right? Um, notice how he is once again dealing with established fact that he has to explain, right? That he can't deviate from and that he has to explain. Watch how that crops up again here. I thought this was a fun illustration of that. Nota bene. It did not include mind or spirit when thought or spoken of as an integral thing. So again, the, so um, mind or spirit are not inanimate nouns because they're not just a, they're not just a part, right? It, when they are an integral thing attributed to a rational creature. So uh, uh, your fea, Right, fea is an animate noun. It's not just a subset of a person, like their foot is a subset of the person. Right? Um, when you speak of their mind or spirit as an integral thing, right, an integrated thing, um, then it's um, uh, it's an it's an animate noun, not an inanimate noun. There were several words in Quenya that bore those senses. But those regarded only as functions or operations of the individual mind-soul went with all other abstracts into the inanimate class. Okay, so when you're talking about the fair, when you're talking about the mind or the spirit, that's an animate noun. But when you're talking about functions or operations, like um, memory, right? Memory would be an inanimate noun. 
whereas mind, spirit, soul, that's, you know, fea, that's a, that's a, that's an animate noun. But things like memory, reason, um, th- that kind of, th- those kinds of things, you know, those are uh, what he's talking about, I believe, when he talks about functions or operations of the individual mind soul. Those things, memory, um, uh, memory, logic, reason, those are all, um, uh, those are all inanimate concepts as opposed to the animate concept of mind or spirit. But now look where he goes with this as he illustrates this. Here's him sort of spinning off into world building while doing this. This is what I find most fascinating. Um, And honestly, I think to some extent, it's actually one of the things that has always, I won't say inhibited me, but it's been part of why I have never really dug into learning his languages for themselves because whenever I start reading any of his linguistic stuff, I get so interested in this part of it. Um, I get so interested in the way that world building and storytelling just like bubble up out of his linguistic, uh, um, you know, contemplations that I, I have a hard time paying attention to the linguistic. I start skipping the stuff in, in italics, right? I start skipping the elvish words, right? Because I'm focused so much on the world building and the storytelling. Um, but, um, okay, anyway, so he says, the organs of the body, such as heart, were never used for or as the seat of thought, wisdom, feeling, or emotion. Okay, so in, in Elvish conception, right, Elvis, Elvish metaphorical use, they do not imagine an organ of the body as the seat of thought, wisdom, feeling, or emotion. And this is something that humans have almost always done, right? Not always consistently. That is, we don't, you know, even if we just think about like Western European traditions, right? Even within, just within Western European traditions, um, there has not in any way been a consistency, uh, any consistency in how, um, in how the, um, like where the um, different, you know, the, the, the thought, wisdom, feeling, or emotion is is seated right um we tend to think of the brain and talk about the heart uh in mo- the modern world right um but of course they thought pretty differently i mean all you have to do is read the king james um and start reading things like um you know whoso hath of this world's good and shutteth up his bowels of compassion right no i sorry whoso uh, half of this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion. Apparently, compassion, pity, is seated in the bowels. Who knew, right? Um, or, of course, if you know your Shakespeare uh, and you um, hear uh, people talking about venting their spleen, right? Well, anger, obviously. Um, uh, or like, you know, one of my favorite uh, Shakespeare plays, Measure for Measure, Um when, uh, who is it? Uh, no, it's uh, Isabella, who in Measure for Measure, who talks about how uh, angels, um, who would, uh, who weep to see man, proud man, they weep to see man. But if they had our spleens, they would laugh themselves mortal. Right, and I remember the first time I ever read that line, and I'm like, what? 
if they had our spleens? Like, who says that, right? Who, who conjectures about what an angel with a human spleen would be like, right? I'm like, how random is that? Um, but um, uh, anyway, so uh, so yeah, I, 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 that was um, uh, that was odd. But again, it makes sense when you know that uh, they, you know, it's part of their kind of cultural mythology uh, that anger was seated in the spleen. Like, that's the spleen's job. They knew the spleen existed. They didn't know what it did, right? This was their theory about what it did. Um, And if you're inclined to laugh at it, you know, keep laughing, because a hundred years from now, you can know for sure, just, like, go to bed knowing for sure that a hundred years from now, they will be laughing at you about many of the things that you believe about the human body. Um, Still true. Um, But, um, anyway, so... His point here is that this this is not an elvish thing. It's not an elvish thing. Um, they don't use organs of the body as the seat of thought, wisdom, feeling, or emotion. But this may have been due to later thought and analysis, he says. Now, Christopher, I, when I read that, I was thinking exactly the same thing. I was like, wait a second. Wait a second. Um... I know there are elves in the Lord of the Rings that say things like, my heart tells me. Isn't that what we're talking about here? They do talk that way. What the heck? Right? Well, look how he goes on. The physical organ heart had the base chom. Is that chom? The K-H sound? Is that supposed to be chom? Um, and this was not in recorded Quenya used of feelings. So in recorded Quenya... They didn't use the word heart, like the word for the physical organ, like the, 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 the chunk of muscle that's pumping in your chest, right? The word for that in Quenya is home. Farther forward in my mouth a bit. Home, home, home. Okay. Home, kind of like that. Um, this was, so that, that word, the word for the beating muscle in your chest, was not in recorded Quenya used of feelings. But an ancient derivative... Chomdo was often used as the seat of the deepest feelings, such as pity or hate, parallel to ore, innermost mind and region of deep thought, where also inspiration or guidance was received. Okay, so there's a, there's a connection, right? It's, it's not, they didn't talk about their heart. Like, they didn't speak as if the physical organ was, in fact, the seat of feelings. But there was a word that was, de- de- that was derived from it. Homdo, right? Homdo. Um, which was a word that was used to describe the seat of the deepest feelings. Your pity or hatred, right, um, was came from your hondo or your homdo, right? Um, which is related to heart, but it's not the same word as heart, right? So there was a concept, when we talk about like deep in my heart, right? There's an Elvish concept for that. But it's not, unlike in English, where we just use the same word and we kind of confuse the two things, right? Um, like you might say, like, my heart was broken, but of course, like no, no actual physical damage has been done to the organ, right? But it sounds like it, right? We speak of the organ metaphorically in that way. So the elves didn't do that. 
in Quenya they didn't use that as a metaphor, but there was this other related word. Chomdo or hondo. Okay, um, related to ore. So you've got your 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 chomdo and your ore. Your homdo is the seat of the deepest feelings. Your ore is the innermost mind and region of deep thought where also inspiration or guidance was received. Now, Christopher, here we go. In The Lord of the Rings, this was translated heart, as in my heart tells me, etc. Cross-reference. Treebeard's adjective applied to... Oh, no, we'll get to that in a second. So, it does happen in The Lord of the Rings, right? Why? It's a translation issue, right? It's a translation issue. Because in English, in the common speech, you know, um, we use the word heart. So that was the easiest way to translate it in order to convey that. But the, the, the actual elvish word that underlies that translation, right? So when we hear an elf character say, my heart tells me um, that it shall be so, right? Or, you know, uh, my heart warns me that. Um, when, we, um, when we get there, then uh, it, it, translating into English, we render it heart in order to convey that. But that's not really how the Elvish works, right? Wonderful explanation. He's got to explain. He's got to explain the the. Um, uh, he's got to explain the the established facts, right? There's data out there. How these elves talk in the Lord of the Rings. It, you know, and he, notice it's not just that he can't go back and change that. He's no interest in going back and changing that. Ilana, as you were saying, you know, in your email that I was reading from, that's the fun of the game. Right? The fun of the game is to take the established data and explain it, right? Make it fit. That's 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 where the fun lies, right? Um, and so here's and that's a, it's a beautiful solution. It's it works. Notice he's not saying something lame. He's not just saying like, yeah, like, you know, it was translated that way, but it's really, it's a bad translation. Right? He, 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 he could have gone there. He could have gone there and been like, yeah, elves don't think that way. If the Lord of the Rings makes you think that elves think that way, it's just because it was a poor translation. But that's a cop-out. You remember with his math, how reluctant he was to say scribal error, right? How reluctant he was simply to say the tale of years is wrong. It's just wrong. Right? He didn't want to say that. He wanted to figure out a way it could be right, but yet still make sense in this larger system. Right? Um, so Bjarne Sonner, exactly. Instead of saying, it might have seemed like they thought this way because it was a bad translation, instead he says, it seems that way because it's a good translation. Exactly. Exactly. It's a perfect translation. It conveys exactly what they were meaning, but it does enable a reader a non-Quenya-speaking reader, right, to make a mistake, to think that elves thought that the heart was the seat of deep feeling, right? They didn't. They didn't. Um, and so here's the explanation for how that, that's not, even though um, my heart tells me is a good translation uh, of, that, uh, of the actual elvish phrase, it's, um, um, it's uh, still can be by itself misleading, if you only know the English, right? Um, it... Um, uh, just goes to show you that Lord of the Rings is better in the original Quenya, apparently. Um, but one more, right? He continues. Cross-reference. Treebeard's adjective applied to orcs. Sinkahonda. Flint-hearted. 
See, look at that. He is so careful. I mean, come on. I would, I, it would, I would have taken a long time to come at that one. Christopher, I was with you. I was, as soon as he started talking about that, as soon as I read um, that sentence um, about uh, how the elves don't use heart as the seat of thought, wisdom, or feeling, I immediately started thinking of a bunch of lines. Just exactly, that was the first one that came to me because we just talked about this so relatively recently when Elrond says, my heart is against his going, about Pippin. Um, yeah, exactly, right? I was like, yeah, hang on a second. That's not right, right? And then he goes and explains it. But not only does he do that, right? Not only does he do that, but he explains an example I wouldn't have thought of for a long, long time, right? Not just the really obvious ones, but the hidden ones, right? In that series of invectives that Treebeard launches, right? Remember that, um, you know, black-handed, uh, flint-hearted, uh, uh, what does he call them? Um, and then he uh, and then he lapses into Entish, right? And then says that he's gonna uh, break. He breaks off and says, you know, because uh, you know their their name is as long as years of torment. Those vermin of orcs, right? Um, as he's giving us a glimpse of the agglutinative nature of old Entish language and thought. Um, did, did I use the word right, guys? Agglutinative. That's it, right? I'm trying to make sure I learn that word correctly. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so um, uh, in the middle of that list, Treebeard calls the orcs flint-hearted. Doesn't that suggest a contradiction, right? Especially if um, at least the vocabulary of, you know, sort of the roots right? Which is a portentous word to use of the Entish language. Um, if the roots of the Entish language are, are Elvish, I mean, if they were originally taught to speak by elves, right? Um, and they might have uh, constructed words together differently, right? And approached the language differently. But still, it's derived from Elvish, right? So why would he, Treebeard, call them flint-hearted? That sounds like he's saying flint-hearted on the surface, um, would seem to mean that their hearts, where they should have feelings or emotions, right, tender feelings or emotions, are instead flinty hard, right? And he says, no, 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 no. Um, he, he can explain this too, right? And he gives us, he says, cross-reference Treebeard's adjective applied to orcs, sink a Honda. Well, that's not what Treebeard says. Treebeard says flint-hearted, right? But he gives us then the Elvish version of that, right? Um, Sink a Honda is apparently how you would say flint-hearted. That's what, that's what like Treebeard was thinking. He was translating it as flint-hearted, right? Um, and uh, um, it says Hondo. So notice that Hondo. That's the same the 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 Hondo uh, word for. Um, the seat of deepest feelings there, right? Um, it was probably influenced in formation by Indo. So, so again, he's... In other words, he says, flint-hearted is an English translation, not of the word hom, heart, beating organ, right? They're not literally flint-hearted, right, in this way. It's, 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 their, it's their hondo, 
it's Cinco Honda. So that, that Elvis translation shows it's the same issue, right? Treebeard calling them flint-hearted and Elrond saying, my heart is against his going. Both of those are using the English word heart as a translation for hondo or hondo, which means the seat of deepest feelings, right? So we're not wrong about flint-hearted. We're not wrong about um, uh, Elrond's heart being against their going. It's just, it's not literally heart, right? Again, it's another example of the uh, um, the good um, the good translation. Um, oh, he does say Cinco Honda in the text. It's part of the when he slips out of Westron and starts using the. Okay, yeah, good, good. Yeah, I'd forgotten that that was actually there. Um, yeah, cool, cool. Anyway, then he goes on to talk a little bit about the probable origins of the word Hondo. So, where does the word Hondo come from? then. It was probably influenced in formation by Indo, uh, probably, which comes from Imdo, self or innermost being, taken as referring to the center of reason. Very similar to Ore. Um, so, okay, so Hondo comes from Indo, which comes from Imdo, um, which is related to Ore, which is uh, that um, uh, center of reason, self or innermost being. Um, so it's... Um, uh, it has nothing to do with the beating organ. It's just the abstract concept of your your innermost being, right? That that central well of wisdom and feelings. Um, anyway, okay, let me move on. But again, I just that same tendency. I just thought that that kind of illust- gave a really neat illustration, Ilana, of some of the things that you were observing there about the math stuff as well. Okay, Calabrimbor, holy cow. Common Eldarin had a base quar, pressed together, squeeze, ring. Uh, keep in mind, this is all in the context of the hand gestures, right? Hands, the hand language and hand gestures. The hand, the hand chapter was really fascinating. Wasn't that fascinating? Okay, so uh, Common Eldarin had a base quar, pressed together, squeeze, ring. A derivative was quara. Quenya quar, teleri, I think, par, cinderin, power. This may be translated fist, though its chief use was in reference to the tightly closed hand uh, as in using an implement or a craft tool rather than to the fist as used in punching. Um, so it's, a, it's a, a hand that is closed around a tool, right? That's the closed fist that we're talking, not the, you know, you make a fist in order to punch somebody in the face. Cross-reference, the name Celebrin Bauer or Celebrimbor, silver fist. This was a cinderized form of the Telerin name Telperimpar, Telperimpar. Quenya version, Tielpinquar, Tielpinquar. It was a frequent name among the Teleri, who in addition to navigation and shipbuilding were also renowned as silversmiths. The famous Celebrimbor, Heroic defender of Eregion in the Second Age War against Sauron was a Teler, one of the three Teleri who accompanied Celeborn into exile. Wait, what? He was a great silversmith and went to Eregion, attracted by the rumors of the marvelous metal found in Moria, Moria Silver, to which he gave the name Mithril. In the working of this, he became a rival of the dwarves, or rather an equal, 
for there was great friendship between the dwarves of Moria and Celebrimbor, and they shared their skills and craft secrets. Whoa. Whoa. Okay. So, um, let's start with the big and most confusing thing. Um, yes, uh, what about what happened to Feanor's grandson? Exactly. Yeah. Um, we're, we've, uh, we've changed that story. Now, uh, if you remember your unfinished tales very well, you will remember the, you'll be able to place where this comes in. Um, why has Celebrimbor ceased to be a grandson of Feanor? Answer, it's all Goadriel's fault. It's all Goadriel's fault. Um, as the story, um, as the story of Galadriel and Celeborn, Galadriel and also Celeborn, um, kind of grew and changed over time as he was, he changed his mind about her backstory on several different occasions. Um, uh, you may remember, if you remember the Mythgard Academy discussion we did of Unfinished Tales, this is what I was calling Galadriel 1.0, Galadriel 2.0, all the way up to Galadriel 4.0. Um, and I'm pretty sure, yeah, I think this is Galadriel 3.0 that we're talking about here. Um, one of the, like, basically, he was, he went through this period where he, he was dissatisfied with the, with the humility of Goadriel's backstory, like he kind of wanted to make her a bigger and bigger deal as uh, as 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 he went along, right? Um, like he he was not in, he was he was not like um, content with her story. Um, so instead of having her be one of the exiles with the rest of them, right, be a follower of Feanor, like you know, for her to follow Feanor into exile, basically, and cross the Helcaraxa and all that stuff. Um, instead of that, which is the story of Goadriel that's in the published Silmarillion, right? Um, so in one of the later versions, he decided that she was going to sail independently. She wasn't going to go with Feanor at all. She rejected Feanor, right? But for reasons of her own, she went into voluntary exile, sailing straight from Valinor uh, to the coast and landing independently so that she was like a free agent compared to all of the Noldoran goings-on um, in uh, uh, in Beleriand in the first age. Um, which is presumably why she didn't play a large role in any of those stories. Right? Um, but in that version, when he had Goadriel as a very exalted figure indeed, like equal to Feanor, right? Um, equal, but kind of opposite to Feanor almost. Um, she also, de he also decided that Celeborn should follow her. Um, Celeborn should not be one of the Sindar that she meets when she gets to Beleriand. Instead, he should be a teller. He should be one of the Teleri from Valinor, right? Or, you know, in Valinor, and that he went with her. So, you know, they get married in Valinor and then they take a boat independently, back across to Middle-earth. Well, I say independently, but not alone, right? Independently of Feanor and the rest of the gang, I mean. Um, and um, in that version, there were a few Teleri here, we were told three Teleri who accompanied Celeborn into exile. And Celebrimbor is going to be one of those. 
right? So Celebrimbor has shifted from grandson of Feanor to one of the entourage of Celeborn, who is in the entourage of Galadriel, right, going across to Middle-earth. So that kind of places... So that's, a, on the one hand, a striking, if not shocking, um, recasting of Celebrimbor. Um, but um, this also, by the way, explains why there's some of... Um, uh, there's some of his Tolkien's later writings where he is he alludes to the fact that there was like a bit of a love triangle between Celebrimbor and Goadru and Celeborn, right? That um, uh, Celebrimbor totally wanted to marry Goadriel and she chose Celeborn instead. And he... Um, uh, you know, was a what's the opposite of a sore loser? Sore loser, okay, an unsore loser. Um, like he was, he was cool with it. He was cool. With it. it was like they were chill. Like they were all, they were all, they were all good. Um, but um, but he totally wanted to marry her himself. This comes in. You can read about a little bit about this in the again unfinished tales. Um, in the passage where he's talking about the Alessar, um, the Elfstone. Um, and doing backstory of the Alessar. Um, and in the version of the backstory of the Alessar in which the Alessar was made by Celebrimbor and given to Galadriel before she gives it eventually to Aragorn, um, Celebrimbor has a, a, whole, a whole speech about this. Um, you know, where he's like, yeah, Galadriel, we could have been great together, right? You chose Celeborn instead of me, and, you know, it's fine. It's all good, but, uh, you know... We could have had something special, I think, right? And so, I, when I first read that, that is like when I was first reading Unfinished Tales, and I got to that bit, and I was like, wait a second. Aren't they like first cousins? Well, first cousins once removed? No. Not once removed. Half first cousins? No. Yes, they are once removed. First cousins once removed. That's ex- half first cousins once removed, right? That's exactly what they are. Because Kurafin and Goadriel are first cousins. Half first cousins. Again, given that um, Finarfin and Fan are half brothers. Um, but anyway, it's still like, kind of close, right? I mean, if, uh, if, if being in love with your first cousin is creepy and twisted, evidence Maiglin, um, then... I was like, I, I don't want to think of Celebrimbor. I kind of like Celebrimbor too much to to put him in that category myself. Um, but um, anyway, so um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but this makes sense of that. No relation. No relation. He's no relation to Feanor at all. He's not Feanor's grandson anymore when that comes in, and I, I, I believe, I suspect, that that whole, that concept of the Alessar making, um, that story, that backstory of the Elfstone, comes from this period, when he was a Teller. Um, and a silversmith. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay, so, 
notice here's the other thing that I kind of love about this I, I'm not saying that I love the whole he's a teller and not the grandson of Fanor thing. The grandson of Fanor thing I think is cooler. Uh, grandson of Fanor who turns away from the evil deeds of his grandfather and yet still makes the rings of power, right? Like can't totally kick the family tradition. Um, I think that's a, a cool story, a really rich story um, in as much as we're ever told Celebrimbor's story, which is not very much. Um so I kind of like, as a story, I like that story better than the Celebrimbor, the wingman of Celeborn um, story. But, um, but it's interesting to me to see that when he's reinventing Celebrimbor, what he does is how this story... I, I, I find myself wanting to use the same metaphor. Um, that, it, that it bubbles up Right, that it bubbles up from not just the language, but from like this whole situation, um, from the language and from the world building. Um, he thinks about elves and elf hands and elf hand gestures and elf words to describe hands and hand gestures. And this leads him to the entirely logical and indeed kind of beautiful concept that... Um, the elvish, the the the, the Noldoran word for fist, right? The Quenya word for fist means somebody whose hand is closed around a tool, right? Uh, a making instrument. And I, I agree. I forget who said that in the comments, but I agree that is like so Noldoran, isn't it? It's like quintessentially Noldoran. It wouldn't even think of you like if you're closing your fist. The last thing you're going to think of doing is just hitting somebody with it, right? I mean, it would be like um, it would be like seeing a a pen. And the first thing you think of is, like, stabbing people with it. Like, yeah, you can stab people with pens. Like, it can happen, right? But um, uh, but if it's the first thing you think of when you see a pen, you're probably doing it wrong, right? Um, uh, using a pen, I mean. Right? And it's the same thing with your hand, right? If your hand closed in a fist first makes you think about uh, just taking that hand and smashing it against somebody's face, you're doing hands wrong, from an older in perspective, right? And I, agree, I think it's really beautiful. Um, but, but we can also see in the name of the, you know, how we get that idea. And then we see that that word, the boar part of Celebrimbor's name um, is the word for fist. So the name Celebrimbor translates as silver fist, meaning silversmith, right? Somebody who works in, who crafts silver, um, and that's lovely. I mean, and you can see how the story just grows from that, right? The story of, um, uh, oh, and so he's the one who gave the name Mithril, right? To Moria Silver, um, and all that stuff. I mean, it's, um, it's lovely, right? It's just lovely, but it's just really interesting to watch this happen I feel like we're watching it happen in real time in passages like this, right? Where these things just kind of emerge and stories come out of uh, his linguistic imagination. Um, yeah. And, uh, Stephen, I agree, it is nice to see someone apart from the Noldor get some notoriety, right? I mean, he's a he's a teller here. Um, so that, that the great Celebrimbor 
um, you know, one of the central figures of the Second Age of Middle-earth should be not one of the Noldor, in fact, um, but uh, one of the Teleri is interesting. A reversal, right, as of course Eregion was one of the only purely Noldoran realms in all of Middle-earth in the Second Age, right? Except, oops, not anymore, right? So that's kind of an interesting reversal by itself. But I agree, it is interesting to see um, somebody, a different Caliquendi uh, other than the Noldor, uh, doing something in Middle-earth. Okay, stuff on the language of hands. I just love, I don't even have that much to say about it. I just love it. Right. Okay. So let's make sure we all understand how this works. One hand, palm upwards, was a gesture of a recipient or of someone asking for a gift. Okay. Right. That 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 tracks. It makes sense to me. Both hands, so held, indicated that one was at the service or command of another person. So you're 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 asking for a gift, or you're saying I am at your service. Right. If you're holding both of your hands, palm upwards together. A handheld palm forwards towards another was a gesture of prohibition, commanding silence or halting or ceasing from any action. Forbidding advance, ordering retreat or departure, rejection of a plea. Okay, so um, we hold our hand up, palm outwards, in order to say hi to folks, right? You know, somebody comes up and you're like, hey, what's up, right? Elves would never do that. They wouldn't do this. To say hello. Prohibition. Commanding silence. Halting. Ceasing. Forbidding advance. Ordering retreat. Rejection of a plea. And yeah, Chad, as soon as we got here, I'm like, it's the Argonoth, right? Oh, but wait, there's more. Um, oh, wait, hang on. Let's read the footnotes. Um, so, a handheld palm forwards. This is true if it's shoulder high or higher. And the raising added emphasis... Right, uh, which is uh, uh, which is really fun. Okay, um, so that and, and then uh, the rejection of a plea footnote. So that a hand was never held up in this way in greeting or welcome. In such a case, the hand would be raised with palm backwards, and for emphasis, with waving of the fingers towards the signaler. Really, so that's how you say hi in Elvish. You hold your hand up with your palm facing yourself, and then you wave at your own face, right? At least that's what it feels like to me. Because when we wave, we think of the waving motion going towards the other person, right? But you're emphasizing, because the fingers bend only the one way, right? You can't... From a distance, this might look very similar, especially if your thumb wasn't sticking out, right? If your thumb is against your hand, palm out, palm back. I mean, again, if you're far enough away, even if you have elf eyes like Legolas, right... You might not be able to tell. Like, are they saying hi or are they saying buzz off? I can't really tell from this distance, right? So, in case there, in situations where there might be any doubt, you bend your hands because then it's clear which direction your palm is. Even from a distance, you can see which direction the palm is. Um, so, okay, okay. Um, you do waving. Okay, in casual greeting and passing. When no further speech was desired, which happens all the time, right? And then again, we tend to wave like this, right? Be like, yo, just hold up your hand or wave your hand in front of you with the palm out is how we would normally do it here, right? In America anyway. Um, And often as a greeting in passing, I think of passing somebody in the hall, 
right? You're, maybe you're talking to somebody else. Maybe you're in the middle of something. You're just like, you know, you just raise your hand, right, to uh, make a casual greeting of gesture. So how would the elves do it? If you wanted to do that, the hand was held edge forward, with or without the movement of the fingers, right? So you'd just be like, yo, edge of the hand, right? Um, that's the casual, um, the casual friendly greeting. Um, love it. Love it. Okay. I'm so glad to learn all these things. Um, and Chad, I too was thinking of the Argonath as soon as we started talking about this. So uh, I was, uh, I was, I was, uh, I, you know, trying to understand. It helped me to picture the Argonath, um, but uh, also. Um, uh, helps me to understand it a little bit better. Okay, we'll keep going. The gesture of the Dunedon, Halberad, was therefore not an elvish sign and would have been ill-received by them. So notice, once again, Tolkien is remembering um, is remembering his Lord of the Rings, right? He remembers all these details. So he has gone out of his way to recall a moment when somebody makes... Halberd comes forward with his hand, his palm out. It's specifically described. He comes out with his hand, palm outward. In token of parley? Isn't it in token of parley? Officially in the book, right? Um, so the gesture of the Dunedon Halberd was therefore not an elvish sign and would have been ill-received by them. This brings up the delightful to me um, image of like Eladon and Elro here behind him, right? They're, 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 they're on horses in the group behind Halberd. And Halberd comes forward and puts his hand up like this. And El- Eladon and Elro here are like, oh, that is so embarrassing. Like, what are you doing, Halberd? Right? Um, what, 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 were you raised in a barn? Right? Um, <laughs> would have been ill-received by elves. Right? And here's Legolas on the other side, right? In token of peace. There it is, Chad. Um, doesn't... How does Aragorn do? Doesn't Aragorn hold his hand up, too, on, 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 at the Hornburg? When he uh, has the brief exchange with the Orokai, right? His hand showed white as he held it up, palm outward in token of peace, but the king's men gripped their weapons. Yeah. Hey, can, can somebody look that up for me? Doesn't he make a gesture? Does Aragorn make a gesture when he stands and calls for, pe- uh, for, for a parley there? I want to see what he does. But anyway, okay. Um, yeah, and Tarlonio, I agree. There probably is a very different set of hand language uh, among the orcs. I, I don't doubt that. Um, but um, now, he doesn't explain why Halberd commits this um, social gaffe from an elvish perspective. Except, I think that Halberd knows better. I don't think this is Halberd being ignorant, right? Um, this is Halberd knowing where he is. He has no reason to suspect that there are any elves. There happens to be one, right? But he doesn't have any reason to believe that there are any elves um, in um, 
uh, in the group that he's approaching. He thinks they're Rohirrim, right? Ah, there it is, Chad. I was right. At last Aragorn stood above the great gates, heedless of the darts of the enemy. As he looked forth, he saw the eastern sky grow pale. Then he raised his empty hand, palm outward, in token of parley. Nailed it. That's the passage that was in my head. Um, Okay. In other words, I think that both of them, I think that both Aragorn and Halberd are using local customs. They know what is customary in this area, in Rohan, right? That if... In token of peace, it's called. Um, when Halberd does it, in token of parley, it's called when Aragorn does it. Right? The look, there is no weapon in my hand thing. Right? You hold it up and you show it palm outward. There is no weapon in my hand. Um, um, uh, but that's not what it means to elves. To elves, prohibition, commanding silence, forbidding advance, reject, stop. It just means stop when they put their hand out, right? So how do you say, uh, what's the token of parley? How do you gesture peace? In such a case, their gesture was to open both arms wide, somewhat below shoulder level, with palms outward. The hands where I can see them gesture, right? In this case, as in the Manus gesture, the open palm signified no weapon. But the Elvis gesture added not in either hand, right? And that's really kind of lovely. When you're standing, like, um, you know, Aragorn holding his one hand out to Parley, like, there's no telling what's in his other hand, right? Um, And uh, whereas the elves emphasize uh, no weapon in either hand. And of course, he goes on to explain that elves are ambidextrous. So this is important, right? This is important. Extension of the fingers modified the significance. The gesture of a receiver or asker, if the fingers and thumb were opened, indicated distress and urgency of need or poverty. So if you put your hand palm up with your fingers and thumb together, that means, please, sir, I'd like some more, right? Um, But if you open your thumb and fingers with your palm up, then you're saying, I'm desperate. I am in distress. I am starving. Please give me something. I beg you. If your fingers are open. The gesture of prohibition in the same way was made more hostile and threatening, indicating that if the command was not immediately obeyed, force or weapons would be used. Right? Um, So I loved the way that this could kind of... um, Escalate, right? Um, uh, to, uh, you know, so if, you know, if somebody's, you know, coming towards you and you're wanting them to stop, right, you start off with this, the uh, the palm out at about the level of the shoulder, right? And then they keep coming, right? They ignore you. Then you raise it up higher and you're like, um, dude, <laughs> right? Uh, I'm, 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 I'm lifting the hand up high. And then you're like, wait, you're still not listening? Then you open the fingers. And you're like, seriously, dude, like I'm about to, I'm about to open up a can on you if you, uh, if you keep doing that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So I, 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 I like, I, notice how you can see this feels, I, what I loved about this is that this feels like the basic grammar 
of the beginning of a language, right? You can see how this itself is developing uh, with all of the different... Um, all of the different permutations, right? All of the different uh, 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 gradations. Um, it reminded me of, well, it reminds me a little bit of the way that he correlates the shapes and sounds of Teng of Tengwar letters. Um, you know what a what a you know dangling stem means and what an upright stem means and. Uh, and all that and all that kind of thing. Um, again, this is it's like it's 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 like the basic, um, you know, uh, the basic like morphology of what is what becomes in the hands of the elves, quite literally, a language, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, and I think that's uh, I think it's pretty cool. No distinction was felt between right and left by the Eldar. There was nothing queer, ill-omened, sinister, weak or inferior about the left, which is very common in human tradition, um, that the left hand uh, and left-handed things and things on the left side are um, weird, strange, sinister, which is the word for left, um, uh, inferior. Think about the, you know, the separation of the sheep and the goats in Jesus's parable, right? The goats on his left and the sheep on his right. Um, uh, yeah, dexterous, dexter versus sinister. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Doesn't work that way in Elvish. Nor anything more correct and proper, right, of good omen or honor about the right. The Eldar were ambidexters. And the allocation of different habitual services or duties to the right or the left was a purely individual and personal matter, undirected by any general inherited racial habit. So there's no tendency, again, in humans, there's a strong tendency towards right-handedness, right? And so that strong tendency towards right-handedness manifests itself in these other associations with the right and the left, right? Um, elves don't have that, and so it changes the way that they think and talk about left and right. An elder could usually write with either hand. If he wrote with the left, he began on the right side. If with the right, on the left side. Because the Eldar found it more convenient that the writing hand should not be liable to cover what had been written immediately before the letter it was engaged on. Well, okay, there's a footnote on this, and we'll get to it. Um... In making the above-described gestures, either hand was used without change in significance. Making them with both was more emphatic, indicating that the gesture expressed a command from a whole community or party, or from a king or authority, via a herald or subordinate. The stone images of the Argonauts, we finally get there, the stone image of the, of the Argonauts held, each held up a hand, palm forwards, but it was the left hand. It was a mannish gesture. The left hand was more hostile, as its use allowed the display in the right hand of a weapon, an axe. Um, yes, yes. Uh, you're right, it does help to be ambidextrous when your cousin has to chop off your right arm while freeing you from Thangarodrum. But notice, Chad, um, and uh, who is that? Melkor Awaken? Um the story of Mithros in the Silmarillion does suggest that Mithros was right-handed. It, it seems to assume it, 
right? We are told that he afterwards learned to fight with his left hand as deadly as he had been with his right. Um, it certainly does not say um, he'd lost his right hand, but it was no big deal as he'd always been as good a swordsman with his left hand as with his right, right? That does not say that at all, right? So this idea of the ambidexterity of elves seems to be a later... Um, um, a later uh, addition uh, on Tolkien's part here. Um, but so, of course, the Argonath, remember, it's, it's not an elvish gesture. It's a human gesture. And they're, uh, they're holding it up with the left hand, which is more hostile. They're holding up their left hand to say, stop. It's clearly, it seems clearly derived from, I mean, you can see where this, this kind of gesture of, these kind of hand gestures are maybe being passed down among the Numenorians, right? The, 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 as, a, as a product of their Numenorian heritage in Gondor. And yet, it's kind of twisted, right? Um, it's kind of twisted because they're holding out their left hand not to indicate peaceful, but so that they can hold the axe with their right. Um, and that's uh, more more threatening. Um, in other words, you notice what we see? See what he's done to the Argonath? He has transformed the Argonath into a piece of evidence for linguistic derivation, Right? that we can see how the hand gestures of the, of the Numenorian kingdom or post-Numenorian kingdom of Gondor are related to, derived from the hand gestures of the elves, but have changed culturally over time and yet seem to differ from the hand gestures of the Rohirrim, who hold up one hand open uh, in order to suggest peace or parley, as Aragorn and Halberd both clearly know. Right, but it's clearly different from the gesture of the ancient Gondorians, which is similar to but different from the gesture of the elves. Right, um, that is so cool. That is so cool, isn't it? Um, again, you can see it's like he can't turn it off. <laughs> he can't turn it off. The philology thing, he can't turn it off. Um, it's uh, that is so cool. That's just that is just uh, just so much fun. Um, yeah, yeah, um, and yeah, Chad, you're right. I mean, it's uh, it's 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 just distinctly described that it's their left hand. That's how, because it's also they describe that they have an axe in their right hands. Um, but uh, was he thinking of that? Does does that mean this is the backstory that this is what he was thinking of when he described the Argonaut? No, no, it's the other way around. That's the established fact. And he's building a whole system that explains and connects that established fact and transforms that. What, 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 what was in his head in the moment that he wrote that description of the Argonoth? Hardly matters, right? That's not what's cool. That's not what's interesting. What's interesting is the whole fabric of language, history, and world building that he fills in around that fact, right? So cool. So cool. Um, okay, yeah, Michael says, I can't wrap my head around writing both ways when almost all the letters have an exact mirror image. Um, Michael, me neither, but, but wait, 
it gets worse. Here's that footnote. Remember, the footnote is to the sentence. Um, an elder could usually write with either hand. If he wrote with the left, he began on the right-hand side. So he's writing from right to left on the page with his left hand. But on, with his right hand, he's writing from the left to the right so that his hand isn't smearing you know, the ink that he just put down. Okay. Um, but, Michael, I agree. How does, how does that work? Well, okay, footnote. But writing was a special case. For economy and clarity, it was desirable that each letter should have a standard form. Theonor had devised his tengwar with shapes more convenient to the right hand, and these were regarded as the correct forms. Consequently, the tengwar were normally written from the left with the right hand, especially in books and public documents. Okay, so Theonor was right-handed, or rather, um, uh, just as Khan's battle tactics show evidence of two-dimensional thinking, so Feanor's alphabet shows evidence of right-handed bias, according to this note, right, according to Tolkien. I'm sure that that comparison is exactly what Tolkien would have been thinking about. Um, uh, but anyway... Um, But wait, but this is where it gets mind-blowing. If written with the left, as often in letters or private records, so if you did write Tengwar with the left, so you were starting on the right side of the page and going to the left side, the Tengwar were reversed and were correct in a mirror. So it's not just a matter of you can write with your right hand or your left hand both equally well. Nor is it just a matter of you start from different sides of the page. But you write the letters mirror reversed. Yeah, and Tomas, I do think that the joke is that Tolkien was right-handed. Which is why what he's kind of alluding to. The Tengwar are more convenient to the right hand. Like, by which I think he means you almost have to start on the left-hand side of the letter, like with the stem and then the humps, right, that come after it. So each Tengwar letter individually, most of them anyway, are much easier to draw the letter from left to right which means it would be more convenient to write it from left to right on the page, which means it's biased in favor of right-handed writing, right? Um, but you can easily do it with your left hand. All you have to do is mirror-reverse every letter and word. Okay? So everything you write is mirror reversed, it would be correct in a mirror. I don't know. I just... It might be a, just a testament to my limitations. I absolutely cannot imagine that. But wait, it gets better. In the runes of later and more elaborate forms and arrangement, reversal was made significant, and there was no difference in convenience for either hand. They were written or cut in either direction or alternating alternating. 
So you'd go back and forth between letters written one way and letters written the other way? Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Okay. It's true that if the letters are reversed, it would make it obvious at a glance which way to read it. I just... Uh, am not sure... Yeah, anyway. <laughs> I don't know that my brain would work this way. Maybe with practice from childhood it would, but uh, uh, this is... Um... And the idea that you're not even being consistent with it? Okay. Okay. Um, I suppose, though, that um, the very right-handed bias of the letters makes this easier to do, right? That is, if it's, if it's, if the letter is biased, if the letter is usually formed with the pen moving through the letter from left to right, then that's going to make it more obvious when it's been reversed, right? Um, if you think of a letter like uh, the English letter V, right? Well, not obvious <laughs> whether that's forwards. I mean, on the one hand, it's the same letter either direction, right? But it's not going to give you many contextual clues to figure out what direction, in what direction should I read this piece of text, right? Um, but something... Uh, but something else, you know, like, I, I, another letter like, um, you know, like A or D or something like, well, not D's a bad example now, isn't it? Um, G maybe, um, would, um, uh, give a clear signal, right? You'd know which direction you were supposed to read it, uh, from. Anyway, that was wild. I, I found that really wild. Um, okay. Um, yeah, lowercase b and d are tough. And Bricktails, I, I I mean, I don't remember my Tengwar that well, but aren't there examples like that in Tengwar? It'd be, uh, it'd be kind of interesting. Be kind of interesting to see. Um, yeah, it'd be kind of interesting to see. Um, James Tauber and Elise Trudel Cedeno are teaching, co-teaching a course next month in space in our space program on Tolkien's writing systems um so they'll be looking at Tengmar and other things uh maybe uh maybe you take that module you can begin to learn how to write Tengmar backwards or something like that reversed um but um yeah anyway cool all right well it's getting late now we're um what are we up to yeah, okay. Oh, the finger stuff. Okay, we'll get there. We'll get there next time. All right. Um, thank you for this. Uh, uh, thank you for joining me tonight. This has been a lot of fun. Um, next time, read up through chapter 10 of part two. We'll see if we get all the way up there. Um, but we'll, we'll try to make it uh, to uh, through chapter 10 uh, for next week. Uh, thanks, everybody for joining me tonight. As I said, this has been, uh, I, I, I just love this stuff. Um, and I love the ways, 
and I'm what I'm looking most forward to as we continue reading these kind of sort of random little fragments that we're getting so often throughout this book is the relationship to his established stories, especially the Lord of the Rings. I don't know what I like better. The places where he recontextualizes and transforms the things that are in the Lord of the Rings or the places where we see those fixed points from the Lord of the Rings informing and transforming his thinking about and world building as we go through. Really, really fun stuff. Um, but uh, anyway, look forward to seeing some more of these things with you as we continue. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye now. <laughs>